You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, well, welcome. Welcome, everyone, to week four of uh, First and Second Kings. Uh, good to see everyone here tonight in person and online. Let me uh, begin with prayer, and then we'll dive right in. Lord, we thank you for your grace, and boy, we really are thankful for such a beautiful day. Uh, thank you for your grace. Thank you for spring. Uh, thank you for the changing of the weather. And uh, we do pray, um, as we read your word tonight, that you would guide our conversation as we explore your work in history. And we help us to make connecting points between what we read in your word and what you are doing in our lives and around us. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would uh, guide us, that you would speak to us, and grant us receptive hearts to receive from you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, welcome, everyone. Uh, tonight, we're going to carry on in our journey. Last week, we, uh, we stopped a little bit early. We stopped just basically at the end of Solomon. And I thought that was probably a good way to, uh, to close things off last week. And this week, we're going to be diving into the reigns of Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And if you're like, who are these guys? You didn't do your reading this week. No, that's, but that's okay. Uh, but we will be uh, exploring their lives because as we explore their lives, um, there are some perplexing stories that show up. And so we're going to look at those. So this chapter, this chapter, chapter 12, um, kind of lays out the story of how the kingdom is divided. And basically... By the time you get to chapter 12 and chapter 12 onwards, um, there's a division, as you know. There's a division. It's no longer Israel. It is now divided into two, um, with uh, 10 of the tribes concentrated in the north and Judah and Benjamin in the south, which, which will just be known as Judah. Um, but as we look at the story of Jeroboam and Rehoboam, um, I want to bring to your attention what the writer is doing because the narrator is one creative fellow. He's very creative. And um, he could just tell us, and then this happened, and then this happened, but he is a person who has fun in his writing, and he's very creative. In fact, this past week, a friend of mine was pointing out to me to the structure of First and Second Kings and the structure of the story of Solomon and the so he just laid out all the structures and structures within structures in First and Second Kings, and I was just reminded again just how absolutely I don't even know what word to use to describe just how amazing God's word is. And our danger is we just kind of read it and it's like, and our eyes kind of glaze over because we think we get used to things. But when you start diving in and you just see how brilliantly structured um, these stories are, your head will start to spin. Because how do they do this? Because, I mean, just as an example, not to go into too much detail, but what, one of the structures that you'll often see in um, the Old Testament and in the New Testament 
are what are called chiasms. Does anybody know what a chiasm is? A chiasm is, is it's, a, it's, a, it's a narrative uh, device. And what it does is that you'll have a whole section, let's say maybe within a chapter or maybe multiple chapters. And the way these chapters are, are, are put together is that you'll have a key theme at the beginning of a section and a mirroring theme at the end of the section. So it could be over two or three chapters even. But you'll have a theme at the beginning and a mirroring theme at the end. And then you have a second theme and the second to last theme matches that. A third theme, third to last theme matches that. And it keeps going and it gets all the way to the center point. So think of like an hourglass, right? So it goes out here, 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 here. And then it gets to the center point and then works its way out again. And everything matches. Like this is, and this is all throughout the Old Testament. And what makes it so fascinating, one, is it's supernaturally given to us. Because this is unbelievable type writing. The other thing is it's fun. When you look at a chiasm and you make your way to the center of the chiasm, what you'll usually find is the key point that the writer is trying to get across. And so the structure can actually tell you a lot of the meaning of the text. And all throughout the Old Testament, there's these chiasms. And a friend of mine who's, who's, who knows the Old Testament quite well is always saying, and David, have you noticed here? And David, did you notice here? I'm like, no, I missed that. And apparently it's, it's it, you know, it's, I guess in, in, in Hebrew, it's, it's, it's even um, clearer, obviously. Um, but it, it is a fascinating aspect of our biblical reading that as English readers, we often just miss, but it's really important. Uh, next week, um, you're going to have a special treat because we're going to be looking at the life of Elijah. And Elijah's life is fascinating, but we we're going to have with us my, my new colleague, Marty Dolphel-Smith. And Marty, um, as I'll probably, when I'll introduce you to her next week, um, she won the uh, Old Testament Award at Regent College. And so she knows her biblical Hebrew inside out. And so, she, and so she's been working on this and we've been talking about the, uh, the, uh, the lesson that she's putting together. And it is going to be a lot of fun. Not to set her up to fail, but I think she'll do really well. I, I've heard Marty teach many, many times. It'll be good. Okay, so with all that aside, so what is, what is the interesting device that the narrator is giving us in this story of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Well, when you read your way through it, make your way through it, you will hear, if you have ears to hear, you will hear an echo of another story from the Bible, which is just such an interesting device, and it's an intentional thing. There's a larger story being alluded to in the story of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And the story of Jeroboam and Rehoboam is told in a way to bring our attention back to a story in the book of Exodus. And that is the story of the Exodus. And as we make our way through it, what you'll find is that Rehoboam becomes kind of like a pharaoh figure. And Jeroboam is kind of a Moses figure. But then his, his identity changes, becomes more and more like Aaron uh, later on. Um, 
And because at the end, one part of the story, we have Jeroboam making not one, but two golden calves. And so if you know the key messages of the Exodus story, it's going to speak into how we read this story tonight. So let's see how it plays out. We know that Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, goes to Shechem in the north of Israel to be crowned king over all Israel. We're not sure why he goes there. I think he goes there because Shechem has been associated in the Old Testament with places of covenant and where kings are made. Um, Where we read where the first judge tries to become a king in the book of Judges. We talked about that um, uh, last year when we looked at the book of Judges. But when he arrives in Shechem, he's like, hey everybody, I'm Solomon's son. Make me king. But it turns out people are not overly keen about Solomon or his son. So we read in chapter 12, verse 4. It says, this is what the people say to Rehoboam. They say, your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. And so Rehoboam says to them, he says, all right, go away for three days, then come back to me, and I'll give you my decision, basically, in terms of how I'm going to treat you. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with old men who had stood before Solomon and his father while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve him and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned this counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, what advice, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young man who had grown up with him said, this is what you're going to say to them, right? Because they're young guys, right? They're, they're cool guys. <laughs> hey, Ray, bomb, this is what you're going to say. This is what you're going to say to <laughs> speak to your people who said to you, your father's made this yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. This is what you're going to say to them. My little finger is thicker than my father's thigh. And I'm pretty sure there's a sexual euphemism there. Um, and now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Okay, wow. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day. And, uh, and the king answered the people harshly, forsaking the counsel the old man had given them. Right? So... As a result, um, there's a division, right? There's a division as a result. So it's an interesting story. It's a really interesting story. One of the things that I find intriguing is the state of the people towards Rehoboam, towards this new leader. Now, did you catch that? And it's just, it, it just kind of further underlines what we've been talking about with Solomon. Because at the end of Solomon's reign, he's not the most... Um, he's not a leader who really cares about the people anymore. You got that sense at the end. He cares more about the royal court. He cares more about gold. Uh, he cares more about women. He cares more about building shrines for these women so that they're happy, his, his wives... But you don't get a sense that he's leading 
as a political leader anymore. Well, that hunch is confirmed here because here you have Rehoboam and they're saying, and what did they say? Your father did make us slaves, but we weren't far from it. It was a heavy, heavy yoke upon us, which is an interesting just, and see, this is what I love about when we're reading First and Second Kings, because you get these little hints. It's like, huh, our suspicion about Solomon was right because we're talking about all this forced labor yeah, maybe Israel wasn't used, but he, sure, he certainly didn't make things easy for the average person. And here you have the people saying, look, your father was kind of hard on us. Instead, you know, lighten our load and we'll serve you. We'll recognize you as king. And uh, the response was, um, you know, the re <laughs> so the, the, the complaints were from the people is that Rehoboam, Israel no longer feels like Israel it feels like Egypt. It feels like we've gone back into slavery. Which is, you know, what Pharaoh did. It was Pharaoh enslaved the people, right? And then we read that Rehoboam behaves in a Pharaoh-like manner to the people. He's given wise advice by the elders who had the benefit of Solomon's own wisdom. They had nothing to gain. But instead, he listens to his buddies. He listened to the young men who had grown up with him, and his buddies say, hey, you show him who the man is, right? You show him who's boss. He don't listen to these old fogies. What do they know? Listen to us. We got it all figured out. And Rehoboam's like, yeah, yeah, listen to my buddies. And I think there's a lesson in there for us. <laughs> I think there's a lesson. Okay, let me ask you, just let's have fun here. Just in this episode, what lessons come to the surface for you? Let me see on you guys online. What, what comes to mind? No life lessons? Any lessons? I think one of, the, one of the lessons that comes out of this, well, is, is, is to listen. Hey, Patrick, you can grab a seat wherever you like. Um, <laughs> wherever you like. Um, one of the, the lessons that comes out of it is, is the importance of not having an echo chamber when you need to make important decisions. It is very easy to get people who think like you, are fans of you, to do what you want them to do, uh, who will say what you want them to say, uh, to reaffirm what you already wanted to do. It's a lot harder to get people around you who may like you but are not impressed with you, and so they're going to speak honestly to you. So it's important to have people around you who, will not, who are not just yes men and yes women. I think that's one. Being a good leader is, is about wielding power. Is, about, is not about wielding, it's about having a heart for the people over whom you have charge. Yeah, that's good. It also points to the importance of experience in making good decisions. Now, I've, um, I've been pastoring for... Um, 
22 years this year. So that's, uh, and, and I'll tell you, when I was started out, and even now, not just when I started out, but especially when I started out, I needed wise men around me to advise me. Because uh, I, was, I was just prone to make so many bad mistakes. And I still made a lot of mistakes, but I would have made a lot more. <laughs> I would have blown up things way a lot, uh, a lot earlier if I didn't have some wise uh, mentors around me. John Davies, he's an old pastor in uh, the Tri-Cities. He was my mentor. Um, so I had a number, and Don Krause to this day is still my mentor. He used to be the senior pastor here. He's been mentoring me since 1999. Uh, and you need older people in your life because we need wisdom, right? And here's Rehoboam. He's just like, I don't need to listen to you guys. And I think, as, as, as you already pointed out, Laurie, um, a key point that's being made is wise leadership comes from listening below, not necessarily listening from above. A good leader listens to the people and gets a sense where the people are at and pays attention to the people and to their well-being. But in the end, we got Rehoboam. He, he rejects wise advice, and he does what he wants to do. And you could say he hardens his heart. Who does this sound like? Sounds like the Pharaoh, right? And then we come across an interesting description. Um, and this is quite an interesting. Look at verse 15. This is an interesting little addition. So the king did not listen to the people. For it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of uh, Nebat. Which is interesting. It says that Rehoboam hardening his heart, essentially, was a work of the Lord. And if you read the story of Exodus and you read the story of Pharaoh, you'll read a number of times, Pharaoh hardened his heart. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And so you get these different aspects or different angles looking at it. And you get the same sort of thing, same sort of language at play here. So Rehoboam is kind of playing the role of Pharaoh. Jeroboam is replaying the role of Moses. Because in, in light of what Rehoboam says, which is basically, I will not let the people go, right? I will not let, listen to the people. He's going to harden his heart. Jeroboam is going to now be um, called upon to lead Israel, okay? And so the people see the tyranny. They revolt against this Egyptian-style oppression. And it's a reminder that you cannot impose kingship upon a people without their consent. And so the people are like, we're out of here. We don't like you, Rehoboam. We don't like the way you act. So they vote with their feet, and many of them, and they, they head up uh, north. And Rehoboam re retains a small part, but his legitimacy as king over Israel is now gone. It's removed. And so as a result, Israel gets divided into two parts. Because you had a bunch of people saying, we don't want to listen to Rehoboam. He's going to be cruel. He's going to be harsh. So let's go. Let's follow Jeroboam. And Jeroboam basically brings with him about 10 of the tribes, concentrates in the north. Rehoboam still has a remnant, 
still Judah and Benjamin, and he's down in the south. And so the kingdom begins to split. Rehoboam, he's persistent. He's like, I'm king. Solomon was my daddy. And so he tries to impose his will over the land. And so he musters an army. I want to seize control. Uh, he wants to do this. <laughs> like Pharaoh, he will not soften his heart. He wants to rule with an iron fist, but nobody respects him or will listen to him. So that's Rehoboam. We're going to come back to him in a little bit. Now we have this fellow named Jeroboam. Jeroboam. Okay, what do we know about Jeroboam? Okay, look at verse 25. You guys still with me? Yeah, and Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If the people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of the people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, the king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Hmm. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. Now listen, listen. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That is verbatim the words of Aaron, right? So it's, it's quite interesting. I think that's, it's, uh, I think it's, 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 it's intentional here. So what Jeroboam does is he looks and he's like, you know what? Yes, the people are with me now. They're kind of following me, but you know, the moment they want to worship, where are they going to go? They're going to go down south. They're going to go back to Jerusalem because that's where the temple is. And if they go to Jerusalem, they're going to, you know, because the temple is right next to the king's palace, they're going to see Rehoboam as their king. And Rehoboam, I know he doesn't like me, so he's probably going to turn the people against me and they're going to kill me. So I got a plan. I got a plan. I'm going to make an entire worship cult system in the north. Now, when I say cult, don't think Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> cult just means like, you know, um, system of worship. So the first thing that Jeroboam does, he goes on the defensive. One, he's worried that Rehoboam is going to muster an army. Second, he's worried that the people's hearts will choose him over, choose Rehoboam over him. And so he takes steps and so he doesn't want them to go down south. And so he says, how am I going to maintain loyalty? Well, I know what I'm going to do. I will build my own kind of religion up here. And so he takes steps to maintain power. So what does he do? He makes two golden calves. And he says to people, hey, 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 you don't need to go to Jerusalem. We got gods here. Well, here's your God. And I have one golden calf. I'll put it um, in, uh, in, in a place called Den. And I'll take this other golden calf and I'll put it in Bethel, which is basically in the north and the south part of the north, northern kingdom. It's like, you don't need to go to Jerusalem. We got gods here. It's all good. Here are your gods that brought you out of Egypt. It's funny how much overlap there is when I've been going through First and Second Kings, 
with my preaching on the Ten Commandments. It's just there's, there's, yeah, this idea that a golden calf in some ways reflects God. God is powerful, right? God is, um, is, is strong. God is, you know, all these things, but he's so much more than what can be captured in a golden calf, right? So these idols are placed in the north and in the south of, of, of the northern kingdom. And so what do we have here? We have Jeroboam following Solomon into sin. And this is not going to end well. I like what Ian Proven says. I think I have it in your notes. The Lord is not simply a convenient symbol that human rulers may adopt to further their own control of history. God cannot be captured in an image any more than he can be confined in a temple. All the moves designed to produce human security that fail to take this into account are doomed to failure. Trusting obedience is, after all, the only fruitful path. Isn't that good? Okay, so it is. This, this story does have an echo of Exodus, doesn't it? You can hear the echo, but it has a different ending. So it's like Exodus, but with a twist. <laughs> um, in fact, what we see actually mirrors the human condition because Jeroboam, rather than receiving Yahweh on his own terms, this is who God is, he decides to call the shots, that I will make up my own way that people should worship God. And so Jeroboam, what he does is he chooses pragmatism over revelation. Yes, God has revealed himself. But let's just get practical. We don't want people leaving. They'll take their money with them. They'll probably come back and kill me. So all that's not really good. So let's try to come up with a religion that's very practical and that will benefit us in the north. And one of the things... Maybe I'll get you guys to chat about this, because I think this is a, a, an interesting question. Um, how important, how important is it to be practical and relevant in our worship of Jesus? <clears throat> Okay, so let me ask that again, because this is a big question. It's a big question in the church. You know, are you doing things that are relevant? Are you doing things that are practical? What are the people wanting, right? So how important is, is relevance and pragmatism in the worship of Jesus? So I'm going to have you guys just talk among yourselves just for a couple minutes. And you guys, I'll, I'll talk to you guys online. Um, so, okay, so how important is being relevant and being practical, pragmatic, in our worship of Jesus. Is that a clear enough question? Fun question? Okay, go. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> Those are good questions. Okay, anybody uh, want to share their insights? Truth, relevance, prag pragmatism? Any thoughts, comments? <laughs> it always happens. That's why I break into small groups, right? So we get to each other. I mean, one of the things that uh, we're talking about is um, that, that, that was brought up in, in, in our discussion 
in our in the cyber world was the um, was just the the need for the connect. If you're a church that's always trying to be relevant, you could easily lose the truth. Like we were so focused on because to be relevant means relevant to whom, to what, right? On the other hand, abstract truth in and of itself um, is important, but it needs to also have a relational element as well. Uh, so it's truth spoken maybe in the context of, of relationship and love. And then the truth has, has weight, it has power, and is connected to, to God's grace as well. Here we have a guy, Jeroboam, who is only focused on making things pragmatic, but not in reflection to who God is and not even in response to what God has revealed, but it is pragmatic so it works so people won't leave. Which is, there are echoes to our, to our modern situation as well, um, where it's, it's easy uh, to, to do that. Hey, can I help you? Sorry? You are more than welcome to come in. No, come on in. Did someone say no? <laughs> no, of course you can come in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> grab, grab a chair, wherever you like. Oh, there we go. Yeah, welcome. We're just walking through, we're talking about this, this book in the Bible, in, in, it's called First and Second Kings. So, yeah, it's in the Old Testament. Yeah. So, one of the things that uh, John Woodhouse uh, says, he says this, he says, but when we want religion to be useful on our terms, we devise from our own hearts modifications, variations, adjustments, embellishments, to what God requires, whether it be buildings, music, liturgies, or whatever. And we're deceiving ourselves, thinking that this is actually worshiping God. And so sometimes the form and, and all, these little, all these other factors override just a, a, a vibrant relationship to God. And that seems to be what Jeroboam's doing. He's putting together this whole system. And so you look at, uh, in, in, in verse 31, it's kind of interesting. It says... Um, he also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among the people who are not Levi. So he even has this idea, it's like, you know what? We've got to create a system here. We've got to create a religion. So I'm going to need priests. So, who, you know, you can be a priest, you can be a priest. So he just kind of makes up his whole system of, uh, of priests. And he installs them. And he, and he has this festival. He goes, you know what? Down in the south, they had this festival. We should have a festival. They had it on the seventh month, but let's be a little bit different. Let's do it on the eighth month of the year. And people are like, so why the eighth month? There's no reason. It's just they're like, this is a good idea. Let's do it on the eighth. Let's do it. Well, it's a little bit different. And we'll have priests. And what's the qualification? Ah, it doesn't matter. Let's do, we just need priests. We need to kind of get people on board here. And so that's what's going on. And so as a result of all this, you get two tra tra trajectories that are happening. Um, you got in the south, you got this, not a really good king, but you, you have some good kings, but in the north, 
basically, after Jeroboam, it is one string of bad kings. I wish there was a good king, but there's nobody. There's nobody. And this will carry on in the north. It's just, they just follow in Jeroboam's footsteps, and every king gets it wrong. And it keeps going until you get to 2 Kings chapter 17, where basically they're done. And the Assyrians come in and they take them all off into exile and the northern kingdom is no more. And so Jeroboam sets, sets the tone. And the worst part is, is that he had a lot of promise. He's a guy, and where God said to him, he said, look, you walk with me and you, you walk like my, my, my servant David, it's going to go really well. You, you'd be a great king. And he blows it. He completely blows it. And then we come across a really strange story. Now, you guys probably saw this. In, in 1 Kings chapter 13, there's a story. Um, you got Jeroboam. He sets up this whole system in the north. And he's like, you know, guys, we got our own system happening up here. I got, don't worry, I've made you golden calves. They're going to be your gods. I created a, a system of priests. These guys are awesome. We got this festival happening on a different kind of month, but it's, it's, that's okay. We have a whole cultic worship system going on here. And to celebrate the inauguration of this new way of doing things, we're going to have a ribbon cutting and, uh, and I'm going to you know, do these sacrifices on this altar. And in the midst of all this, well, Jeroboam is like, wow, this is a new, awesome system that I've come up with. We read about this man of God who comes from Judah and speaks to Jeroboam. And it's kind of a strange story. But one of the points of this is that the God of history who acts in history, who reveals himself, he's not to be overridden with novelty. And that's why Jeroboam's life is so tragic. You know, he had a lot of potential. But nothing shatters man-made religion better than the word of the Lord, which is what happens here. So we jump into a strange story. So let's linger here for a, for a moment. We come across in chapter 13. And behold, look, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Right? That's one of the, one of the worship places. Jeroboam standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, he speaks to the altar. Thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Wow. And he, said, he gives a sign the same day. He said, this is a sign that the Lord has spoken. The altar is going to be torn down, and the ashes on it are going to be poured out. So you have this guy, he comes up, and, and, and if you read this chapter, it's, it'd be interesting to mark down how many times you come across the word of the Lord. In fact, it's interesting. This phrase, word of the Lord, up until now, has appeared in 1 Kings only four times. 
which is four times. But between now and the end of 2 Kings is going to show up 43 more times. And so you see who's going to be quite important here are these prophets that are going to be coming and saying some things to these kings. We'll look at a guy like Elijah next week. So, these, so the word of the Lord, these, the prophets are going to start playing a very important role. And the word of the Lord is probably the most important, if not the most important theme in the book of Kings. So, who is this man who comes up and speaks to Jeroboam? We don't know. We don't know who he is. Probably a prophet. But one thing we do know is he's from Judah. He's from the south, which is still ruled by the house of David. The house that Jeroboam is worried about. The other thing, this guy comes by the word of the Lord. Again, it's an unusual expression. But in this story alone, it shows up seven times. And over and over again, it, kept, it keeps saying, he comes to Bethel, he comes to Bethel, he comes to Bethel. And uh, where he sees Jeroboam doing his man-made religion. He's carrying out his, his system that he's come up with. And so what does he say? It's kind of interesting. He doesn't speak to Jeroboam. He doesn't even bother with Jeroboam. He just looks at the altar that Jeroboam has made. He goes, ah, altar, oh, altar. He goes, you're going to be crumbling in pieces and, 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 and priests are going to be sacrificed on you. I mean, he's just saying this, this is not going to end well. And so it's a very unusual prophecy. And the other thing that's kind of strange, he says, there's going to come a day where these things are going to happen. Well, these things actually do happen. So his prophecy comes true, but it doesn't actually come true until the very end of this book of Second Kings. So this is way off in the future and concerns uh, Josiah. So what happens? Well, the king sees this guy, and what does he do? Do you remember? Not at first. Seize him! You know, grab that man! Guards! <laughs> I don't know. So he reaches out, he goes, get that man! And as soon as his hand goes out, his hand shrivels up. And then Jeroboam's like, ha, ha, ha. Just kidding. And he's like, uh, little help. He says, say, could you pray that my hand would be okay? And the man, too, is, you know, in grace, he says, yeah, I'll pray. And so he prays, and his hand's restored. And Jeroboam's like, ha, ha, uh, sorry about the whole guard sees him uh, nonsense. How about, uh, how about you come over for dinner? Come on over for supper. Let's, let's you and I hang out. And the prophet says, no, I can't. I've been given strict instructions. I'm not going to. What are, what are the instructions? Do you remember? Do not eat or drink. And go back. Yeah. And when you go back, go a different way home. Um, yeah, just to go a different way so you're, so you're not tracked down, basically. So it's interesting. And so he says, no, this is what God's told me to do, to deliver this prophecy, and that's it. I'm not going to eat, not going to drink. I'm just going to head straight back to Judah. 
I don't care if you're, and, and, and Jeroboam said, no, I'll come and have dinner. He's like, I, he goes, I don't care if you give me half your kingdom. I'm not going to stay. Because what God has told me to do, this is what I'm going to do. So he goes. Now, this is where the story gets puzzling, more puzzling. Because we read that there's this other guy here, this old man. And this old man, um, this old man, he hears about this young prophet. And this old prophet who lived in the land, he lives in Bethel. So it's easy for us to just say, okay, there's this old prophet. Of course there's an old prophet. But who is this prophet? And why is he living in the north? Right? Why, why is he living in the north? What kind of prophet? Is he a prophet? Like, has he been hired by Jeroboam? Is he one of Jeroboam's, you know, hey, buddy, have you ever thought about being a prophet? You could be one of my prophets, right? Or, or what is it? We don't know. Um, did he support Jeroboam's religious innovations? We're not sure. Um, if he is a prophet of God, um, if, if he is a prophet of God, then why did God raise a prophet from Judah if there is already a prophet in the north? It's a strange question. Like, it's a strange, it's, it is strange. All we really know is that he's old. So is he part of Solomon's group of prophets? We don't know. But we, we do know this, and this is kind of a strange thing. We know that um, he finds out about this man of God. And we read that, um, you look in verse 11 in chapter 13. Now, an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his sons, or son, came and told him, all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words he had spoken to the king. Okay, now hang on. We have to read carefully here. What is his son doing there? Why is he at the altar? Why is he hanging around with Jeroboam? Is the son part of this new cultic system that Jeroboam's thought up? And is that, is the father kind of, you know, the older prophet, is he kind of similar? It's just, there's a lot of mystery here. And we do know the son came to him and he tells the dad what had happened. Why was he at the altar? We don't know. Reports to the old prophet. And then the old prophet seeks out the man of God. And it's interesting, over and over again, the old prophet from Bethel, seeks out the younger man of God from Judah. And they emphasize Bethel and Judah, Bethel and Judah, over and over and over again. And so the older prophet catches up to him. He says, hey, hey, slow down, slow down. Wait, what's your hurry? Why don't you come back to the house for dinner? Now, it's not clear when he says the house. Is he saying back to the temple? Because the word's similar. Or is he inviting him to his home? But right away, the man of God says, no. I've been told, I've been instructed, no eating, no drinking, 
deliver the message, go straight back home, take a different way so you don't get tracked down. Somehow you tracked me down, but I'm going to go home a different way, right? It's very clear. But then the old prophet persuades him to come over for dinner. How does he do this? He says, hey, you're a prophet. Funny thing, I'm a prophet. I, I mean, I'm not, like, I'm not an idolater or anything like that. I'm a prophet. You, you and me, we're, we're the same. Oh, and the other thing, as a prophet, I should tell you, God has spoken to me. And God has told me that it's perfectly fine for you to come over to my house for dinner. Just, just, I mean, you're probably hungry, probably thirsty. You can come over to my house for dinner. And, and just to clarify, when I say house, I don't mean the temple. I mean, we wouldn't be going to the temple. It's just coming to my house. And I'll make you something to eat and we could have something to drink. And then we read these interesting words. And yet it was a lie. So we know it's a lie. We know everything that he's saying. But he lied to him. He was not the same kind of prophet as a man of God. No angel had spoken to him. That's what he said. An angel of the Lord also told me that it's okay for you to come and eat and drink over at my house. But that he lied. It's not true. There's no invitation. It was all a lie. Now, this is where it's strange. Was the old prophet's intention to turn the man of God away from the way of obedience? In the end, the man of Judah succumbed to the lie. And one guy puts it this way. He says, the whole story in 1 Kings 13 is, is kind of like a real-life parable. He says, we're getting a foreshadowing of the history to be told in the rest of the book of Kings. Because you know what happens in the rest of the book of Kings? Is in the north, you get bad king after bad king after bad king worshipping all sorts of, you know, these, these um, different kind of deities and all sorts of, you know, child sacrifice and all horrible things, right? And basically what happens is over time, the impact of the north affects the direction of the people in the south. It eventually wears down Judah. And Judah succumbs to that. And, and Judah, in the end, is also carried into exile. And so some guys, some people say, this little story, this strange little story, in some ways is like a little microcosm of the bigger story of what takes place between Israel and Judah. Interesting. Um, let me just pause here for a moment and ask Phoebe, can you turn on the lights? I just realized it's been... It's so light out now. It's like we don't have to turn on the lights. It's like it's getting darker and darker in here. Hey, there we go. Now, now I can see my notes. <laughs> okay, so they're sitting at the table. You get the, the, the man of God eating, and then you have this old prophet. Again, we don't know what kind of prophet it is. He may be a prophet of not of God, of something else, right? Um, but, now, I probably, this is probably not a good analogy. So forgive me, I'm going to give it a shot. And some of you will have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> 
But in, in there's, a, there's a novel, a series of novels of Harry Potter. I don't know if you've ever read Harry Potter or ever watched the movie. There's this character in the Harry Potter novels called Professor Trelawney. And she is the mystical fortune-telling. She's always telling Harry Potter that she, he's going to die. And, and she's always trying to give you know, prophecies about it. But every single prophecy is wrong. She's always getting it wrong. She's, she's, she's just a false prophet through and through. But twice in the novels, she actually gives out a true prophecy. And it's, it's kind of unusual. Her voice changes and it's actually, oh, this is actually a real... So, the, so again, I don't know if that's a good comparison, but what you have here is this, this old prophet who's just like, he's lying and lying, and then all of a sudden, he does speak the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord says, look, you were supposed to do what I said for you to do. You didn't do that. And now you're not going to make it home and you're not going to be buried with your, with your family. And sure enough, the next day, he tries to go home. He's riding his donkey and he gets attacked by a lion and he's killed. And then one of the... And, and I don't know about you, but I, when I read that story, I'm like, poor guy. Like, I really feel bad for the guy. Like, he... But I remember I was listening to Ian Proven talk about this. It's, it's interesting. Because you think, you know, poor guy, he's just like, he got duped. He got duped. But he was told, and he was sure that this is what God had said. And this is one of the things that Ian Proven said. I think it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. He says, by and large, in Scripture, throughout the Bible, If there is a choice between God extending grace or judgment, it's generally grace. Like, God's grace is much, much greater than judgment. You make your way through Scripture and you see that. But every now and then you get a little picture of the wages of sin. You see that with the story of Ananias and Sapphira. You see it with the sin of Achan. And you see it with this guy who was told very clearly, this is what you're supposed to do. Just, this is what you're supposed to do. And um, he doesn't do it. It's, it's, it's still heavy. It's still heavy. And, and the end of the story is strange because the deceptive prophet from Bethel, he gets to live while the prophet of the Lord who is deceived ends up being killed. But I think... I think there's a couple of lessons from this story. Um, again, this is a bit of a microcosm of the larger story of Judah and Israel. Yeah. So we come back to the Jeroboam story. And we see that if prophets cannot escape judgment, well, then kings certainly will be subject to the same. And in the end, Bethel and the idolatrous practices surrounding it will be destroyed. Uh, Jeroboam, who, by the way, was a man of such promise, who, if he had walked in the ways of David, he would have been king over all Israel, but instead he takes matters into his own hands, creates his own religion, and that becomes the problem. Now, the end of Jeroboam is kind of sad. Um, well, yeah, it is. See, Jeroboam is one of those guys, and I get it. Jeroboam is one of those guys. He's, he had so much promise. 
He had so much promise. It's like, Jeroboam, you're, you're the man. If you walk in my ways, you're going to be king. And Jeroboam, he, he just couldn't get it, though. He, he wants to, be, to build his own temple, but he was never told to. He wants to set up his own cultic system, but he, he was not told to do that. And one of the issues for Jeroboam was that he saw God as a system to be manipulated rather than God who reveals himself and to be obeyed. And even by the time we get to chapter 14, we still find Jeroboam trying to manipulate outcomes. He even thinks, I mean, Jeroboam, he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer because like, he's, he really thinks, he really thinks, in light of all that has just gone on, he really thinks that he could fool God. And we won't get into the story yet. We're going to get there in a moment. But he has, his wife has a baby and the baby's sick. The son's sick. And he's like, go see the prophet. Go see this prophet. You know, the prophet who actually said I'd become king. Go see the prophet, but disguise yourself. And ask him whether or not he thinks this child's going to live. But don't reveal that you're my wife. Well, as if God's not going to be able to see this, right? But what I'd like us to do is pause for a moment, because I've been talking for a while. And uh, I want to pause for a moment. I'm going to ask you guys a fun question. What are the ways in the Christian life that we can try to manipulate God and use him as a means to an end? Is that not a fun question? What are the ways in the Christian life we can try to manipulate God or use them as a means to an end. Okay, so I'm going to leave you guys to chat. I'll pause for a moment. Okay, let me uh, see, see if you guys will lean in. What are some ways in the Christian life that we try to manipulate God or use them as a means to an end? I did talk about this in my sermon. I'm sure you guys all remember my sermon, the key points that I brought up. But uh... <laughs> what are some ways? What's that? The magic trick, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's a magic trick. Or is it a genie? Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah. So what are some, like, how, how do you see this expressed in, in the church? Because nobody would ever say, God, you're a genie, right? But we treat them that way. So how, what kind of language do we use? If you do, I will. If you do, I will. Oh, very good. The great exchange. Yeah, yeah. Martin Luther, you know. Help me, St. Anne, and I will become a monk. Yeah, during the storm. What else? What, one of the ways, and again, I, I, was, I, was, I was sharing, to, uh, sharing um, with my cyber friends, um, one of the ways we do this, and it's, it is a little touchy for me to say this, because I, and I want to make sure you don't misunderstand me, but it is the idea that if you have a friend who is sick and you want to pray for healing and say, well, it's not, I'm not just going to pray. I'm going to get a lot of people to pray. In fact, I can get everybody to pray. And then for sure, God will heal this person. Now unpack that a little bit, what's going through your mind. So if I pray, then God is like... <laughs> Like, come on, really? Just you? And 10 people? Not enough. 20 people? 30 people? 
40 people, now I can hear, keep going. 50 people, now I will pay attention to you. I mean, now don't mishear me because I do think many people praying together for somebody who's sick or what is a beautiful act of caring. And it's an expression of love. And it's a picture of the body of Christ holding each other up. Absolutely, that's so good. But if we think that the more people we get praying, the more likely God will hear, what does that say about how we think about God? It's, so that, I mean, that's one way. That's just one way. But it's a very common way I see in the church. And I kind of push back a little bit when I hear people say, oh, we're going to get everybody. It's like, okay, so what are you saying? If you just pray, God's not going to hear you? Again, to pray together as, as an act of love is absolutely important. But I think I bet there are some ways in our life that we, we treat God and we think we can manipulate him. The great exchange is when, oh God, if you do this, I'll, uh, I'll, give, I'll give more to the church. Yeah, I'll give, you know, you know, that sort of thing, right? But it's like throwing a coin into the, into the fountain, right? You know, if we, I'll make a wish and if it comes true, that's great. So we have to be careful. Um, well, here we have Jeroboam trying to manipulate God. He sends, he sends his wife and he puts her in disguise and don't tell him, don't tell this prophet who you are and see what's going to happen to my son. And he's hoping a good result is going to come. Now, Jeroboam, in, in many ways, he's, he's, he's acting like a functional atheist. For Jeroboam, if God exists, he may exist, but he certainly does not matter. He can be manipulated. But it's a flawed plan right from the get-go. This is in chapter 14, because it's based on a flawed view of reality. You can fool a blind man, but you can't fool a blind man who has an, such an intimate relationship with God. As uh, Ian puts it, uh, he says, God cannot be frustrated by human stratagems. God's ways cannot be diverted by cakes and honey. So she goes there, and she thinks she's going to pull a fast one. And uh, Ahijah, as soon as she gets, comes to the door, he goes, Hey, hello, wife of Jeroboam, come on in. Which I think would be very scary at that point. And so what's the message for her? He goes, simply this. He says, you know, Jeroboam's been an abject failure. He has failed miserably in filling David's shoes. He's like Solomon, worshiped false gods. He's even set up a false system for worshiping false gods. And because of the evil he has done, there's going to be complete disaster on the house of Jeroboam. Everyone in the household is going to come to a terrible end except for the son. The son is going to die, but only he is going to be buried properly. Everyone else is not going to go well. And um, Ahijah then turns his gaze to the northern kingdoms as a whole and prophesies that Israel will always, the kingdoms up north will always be unstable. He describes them as a, as a, uh, as a reed swaying in the water. And, and when we read about the succession of the son of Jeroboam, another son, a guy named Nadab, we know as readers that this poor king, like his dad, I think the theological term is, is toast. He is in a lot of trouble, yes. 
none of Jeroboam's relatives are going to survive. So what is, what is the legacy of Jeroboam? Well, he was a, he's a guy who lacked faith. He did not believe in the prophetic ideal. Um, he, he did not see Israel as God's kingdom. He saw it as his kingdom, his greatness. And he sets up a whole rival system and, and is, is clued out in the whole, whole, whole way through. The problem is, is that everybody falls in Jeroboam's steps and they never repent. Now let's go back. Now one of the things when we're, when we're reading this, you have to realize from now on, this is what the reader does or the narrator does. He's, he's very creative, but he's telling stories because now you got two storylines. You got what's going on in the north, what's going on in the south. And so what you'll often ha have happen is the narrator will say, okay, then this king and tells the story of this king and this king and, this, and it'll go on for a couple chapters. And then you're at this point. And then the next chapter, he'll be at this king in Judah. And, he'll and so you have to keep track of the timelines because there'll be a lot of overlap. And to help you do that, and I gave you a handy-dandy chart at the end of your notes. Do you know how long that took me to put together? I, I, I had to cut and paste that from Google. Um, and so it took me a long time. Okay, so let's say goodbye to Rehoboam now. What about Rehoboam? Well, Rehoboam, here's the thing about Rehoboam. He's also a disappointment because he would have been a young man during the glory days of Solomon, his dad. And he would have witnessed the building of the temple. He would have heard Solomon, his dad, give this great prayer of dedication. He would have seen his father's wisdom and glory. But in the end, Rehoboam actually reigns for less time than Jeroboam. Like he's, he's, he only reigns, uh, I think for, what was it, 17 years? Yeah. Shorter than 22 years of his, of his uh, rival to the north. Now, why is Jer Rehoboam such a disappointment? Well, we get a clue. We get a clue in his life when we read about um, his mom. His mother's name, and, and, and you, you know it's on purpose that the narrator gives us his mother's name. His mother's name was Nema the Ammonite. So what that tells us is that Rehoboam was the son of one of the many foreign women that Solomon loved. She was one of the thousand, right? It'd be an awkward Valentine's gift. Honey, you are one of a thousand Valentines. <laughs> Not one in a thousand. Now, in the, the evaluation of Rehoboam, it's interesting. He describes the effect of Rehoboam on Judah as a whole. And it's not looking good. I mean, Rehoboam has a horrible impact on, on Judah. Look what it says in verse 22. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed more than their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars and ashram on every high hill, every green tree. There were male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out the people of Israel. And yeah, he, he just, they did, they built high places for pagan gods, pillars, which are raised stones, echoes of Canaanite religion. Um, 
Everywhere you looked, you found people practicing all sorts of different things. And basically, the word to describe what the people were doing under Rehoboam's watch, the word is evil. That's what's used over and over again. They did according to all the, uh, the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And it's interesting, because of Rehoboam, the way he lives, it's, it's, it's tragic, but you see what happens. What happens to the south? Is, do you know? They get paid a visit. Who visits them? Egypt. Yes, good old Egypt. And the king of Egypt. And it's interesting because archaeologically, you, there's, there's reference to the um, king of Egypt at that time making forays into, into what would be uh, Judah, right? So the, this guy named uh, Shishak, the king of Egypt, comes up against Jerusalem. And what does the Egyptian leader do? What does he take in particular? Gold uh, you remember those gold shields that Solomon was so happy about? I got gold shields. They're pretty useless in battle, but I have gold shields. Well, even those beautiful gold shields that he had invested so much into are gone. The treasury is gone. And it's kind of lame. It's like, okay, I guess I'm going to build some bronze shields instead. So that's what he does. He builds some bronze shields and he puts them on display. <laughs> Uh, the golden age was over. As the old hymn puts, time like an ever-rolling stream bears all its sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream dies out the opening day. And then we read that there's a war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. And the question we have is what's next for Judah? Now, you do get a pretty good king that comes on the scene. We're not going to go into him, but he is an interesting fella. His name is King Asa. And Asa does a lot of things well. But the attention is there just for a moment, and then it, the attention then goes to um, Israel, to the northern kingdoms. And we read, after the death of Jeroboam, things go downhill, and they continue to go downhill, and you keep, keep reading about it. I'm sure you were reading about it, but then what I want to look at is in, in chapter 16, verse 21, we read about Omri. The house of Omri takes over. Now, this first king of this dynasty is Omri. And under his leadership, things do get better. He's a very able leader. He brings peace between Israel and Judah. He recaptures lost territory. He establishes Samaria as his capital and led a dynasty of four kings. He made some shrewd alliances, engaged in trade. In fact, I said this earlier at the, in the first week, that in, um, I believe in, in Assyrian um, histories, um, uh, uh, history of uh, the Assyrian people, there's reference to Israel, but they don't, make, they don't call it Israel. They call Israel the land of Omri, because Omri is a big deal in history. But a big deal in history is not necessarily a big deal in God's economy, because in the book of Kings, Omri gets six verses. You only get six verses, which God has a different criteria for measuring greatness. Now, if Omri only receives six verses, the same cannot be said about his son Ahab. Ahab is going to have six chapters. 
there's a lot of conversation about Ahab. Um, and, he, and there's a lot of talk about Ahab primarily because he's so bad. Uh, he makes a great villain. <laughs> and two things combine to make him one of the most infamous characters in the Bible. One is his marriage to the lovely, beautiful, gentle Jezebel. A thoroughly from t wicked character. Uh, she, is, she is something else. But the other thing that makes Ahab so famous is his encounters with the prophet Elijah. Yeah, and so um, that is what we're going to be looking at next week. We're going to be looking at the story of Elijah. But the looming question at this stage, because I'll have to say, you know, when you read Kings, it can get kind of depressing. Now, I do like when we get to Elijah and Elisha. I mean, it's, it's, it's fun stuff. It's interesting stuff. But here you have, you know, people who started off worshiping the Lord are now worshiping other gods. They're paying the price. Deception and lies fly around. Um, people are seduced into all sorts of things. And the world is looking increasingly hostile, threatening, and dangerous. So you have a lot of people doing whatever, the, whatever is right in their own eyes, and the world is splintering, falling into pieces, and it's hostile, threatening, and dangerous. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like a certain world that we know? <laughs> and I'll tell you, it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to get discouraged. That is why, as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, the key word that we need to remember is the word memento, which means to remember. We need to remember that we are people living on the other side of all this. We are people who have an eternal king from the house of David, who through his life, death, and resurrection offers us an everlasting kingdom. And yes, we need to be careful we don't succumb to the worship of other gods, whether it be consumerism, destruction of the planet, uh, the environment, sovereignty of the will, politics, control, whatever it happens to be. But we have help along the way, and that is God's Holy Spirit, the God's empowering presence, who will keep our path straight, <laughs> that we'll listen and our path will be straight, and we won't get deceived. And, and uh, the promise that God gives us is that he will keep our path straight, keep us aligned to him, and he will lead us safely home. And so we have to hold on to that because we are living, even as we're reading First and Second Kings, we are living on this side of things, right? And we need to remember we're living on this side. Otherwise, we get really discouraged, right? Um, any, uh, any questions or comments? Actually, why don't I uh, I'll close things off and then we'll do questions and comments because sometimes people are nervous to ask questions when it's being recorded. So let me pray and then we'll go into Q&A. Lord, we thank you for your grace and we thank you for warnings through your word, through the life of Jeroboam and Rehoboam, um, even through the life of this prophet um, who, uh, who goes astray. Lord, help us to walk with you. You are the author of life. You are the, you are the author of love. And our lives will work only insofar as they're aligned to you, who is the truth, the life, and the way. So help us to walk with you, because only when that happens will our lives make sense. Otherwise, we're just chasing 
going down blind alleys, empty streets, trying the same thing over and over again and wondering why it doesn't work. And so we come back to you as the author of life, and we do pray that you would guide us and you would lead us safely home. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.